congratulations, all of you who remembered to set your clocks forward or had your phones do it for you. It, it's, I know that it used to be that I looked forward to the fall back because I'd get an extra hour of sleep. Now, as a parent whose kids are on this schedule, I look forward to spring forward because I'm like, I get an extra hour of quiet time before my boys get out of bed. So Kathy and I are not planning at this point of letting them know that the time has changed. <laughs> We're just going to see how long we can drag this out. Um, today was glorious. It was like 7.30 in the morning. They come out, and they're like feeling like they just got up at the normal time, and I'm going, you have no idea. So, Hey, I know that on Saturday, we have a crew of you who are going to be going down to Mexico, and before I jump in today, I'd like to an opportunity to pray over you. So if you are planning on going on the Mexico trip, would you stand up? Okay, we've got a few of you here. Awesome. All right, and if, you, if there's somebody standing around you, if you just extend a hand, let's go ahead and pray over this team. Father God, I thank you so much. Actually, you know what? Don, come here. Don, I'm going to have you pray over your team. Dagnabbit. I don't know if this is the right one. We'll find out in a second. Otherwise, you can just talk into my face. Awkward. All right. Look at you all. (laughs) Okay. Jesus, we just ask you to um, protect my team, our team, White House Community Church's team as they go down to Mexico, Lord. And just love on the community there, the kids. And pour, pour out love into them. And uh, just touch each and every one of the team's hearts too, Lord. Because they're going to be changed when they come back. They're going to be searching, Lord, thinking, wow, they've, they've had a, a taste of what it's all about, Lord. And we just ask you to be with the men at the community center, Lord. Just open, open those doors, Lord. Those men really need you in their lives, each and every one of them. Just ask you to be with the families, the kids, and their wives mm-hmm. as they try and make, make life pleasant for their kids without their dads being there, Lord. We just ask you to be with them and give them the strength. And we do have some success stories, Lord, that there are guys that have come out of that center that are keeping their lives together, Lord, and loving on their kids. Just ask you to be with each and every one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Doc. All right. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We are slowly working through this letter that Paul wrote. And as we looked at last week, we did quite a bit of backstory, trying to establish the context for it. And as we looked at, this is not a letter to a specific church. Rather, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a a region, a group of churches that both he and Barnabas helped plant in this region of Galatia. Um, And it's not a letter that's full of a lot of warm and fuzzies. It's not cordial because For Paul, he's realizing that there is a group of Jewish Christians who have infiltrated this church with a a corrupted gospel that really is no gospel at all. And what they were saying to these new believers is, listen, what Paul preached to you was only a partial gospel. And in reality, the full gospel is this. Not only did Jesus die for you and you need to be saved through him, but because Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah... In order to take hold of Jesus, you need to be Jewish. And so if you truly want to be saved, 
What you need to do is get circumcised. You need to submit to the law of Moses. You need to become Jewish. And Paul, when he heard what they were teaching these young believers in the region of Galatia, and when he realized that the the young believers were grabbing a hold of it and saying, oh, okay, well, then we'll become Jewish, he lost his head. I mean, probably the closest I can get to the feel that he had is, is like a father who has trained his kids, don't do drugs, stay away from drugs. Drugs are not good. They will ruin your life. And then he goes out and back and he finds his kids smoking crack with one of the kids down the street. And he just loses it. What are you doing? I taught you better than this. You know that this isn't safe. You're, going, you're, you're, you're in danger of losing your life. And then he looks at the kids through who, who have been in, in, you know, kind of giving his kids these drugs. And he goes, and you, you can go to hell. I mean, he's just, that's how he feels. And that's what you feel as you start reading the opening verses of this. Well, I cannot believe you've so quickly abandoned the gospel that I taught for a gospel that isn't even good news at all. And, and as for those people who have been teaching you this false gospel, may they be eternally condemned. Right? I mean, there's a lot of energy. This is probably the most raw and emotionally filled letter that Paul writes. And the problem that we run into here is that our goal when we read Scripture is not simply to say, well, what does this say to us today? That's important, and that ultimately is, is our desire in reading Scripture, is that it speaks into our lives here and now. But as we talk, we've talked about a time and again, before we can ever ask, what does this mean to me here and now, we first have to ask, Well, what did this mean to them there and then? Because although scripture is God breathed, it is also a product of a a specific time. There was a specific writer, a guy named Paul, writing to a specific group of people, these churches in Galatia, about a specific set of circumstances. So we have to first ask, well, what did this mean to them? With Galatians, we have a little bit of a problem, though, because Galatians was born out of conflict between two parties, between Paul and these Jewish Christians. And for Paul, we have a very good idea of what he thought because we still have the letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia. We know that he felt that they were false teachers. We know that he felt that they were preaching a gospel that was not a gospel at all, was not good news. But of course, these Jewish Christians would never have considered themselves to be false teachers. They never would have considered the gospel that they were preaching to be a false gospel at all. So in order for us to begin to address, well, what's going on here? We need to try to figure out what they believe, because as anybody knows, there's always two sides to any story, right? As a parent, I know when Ethan comes and tells me something that Grayson did, I know there's another side to it. He kicked me. Okay, why did he kick you? I don't know. He just kicked me. Grayson, why did you kick him? Because he kicked me first. Ethan, did you kick him first? Yeah. Didn't bother to tell me that part. Well, he kicked me last. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to spend a couple of minutes and try to reconstruct who these Jewish Christians were, what they believed, and what they were accusing Paul of. Because much of the book of Galatians, particularly the passage we're going to look at today, is a rebuttal of some accusations that these Jewish Christians were leveling against him. Of course, we have to ask, well, what was he responding to? What were their accusations? In order for us to reconstruct this, we need to do something that scholars call mirror reading. And what we mean by that is we have to look at what Paul is arguing, 
what his kind of defense. And from that, we need to try to infer what it is they were accusing him of. Obviously, this is not an exact science because we don't have their words. It's not like they wrote a letter to the Galatian churches that we have as well, and we can compare the two. Instead, we have to try to extrapolate from what Paul says, from what we have in the book of Acts and other places, and it's some other things that are beyond the Bible to try to go, well, what's going on here? And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of this. There are scholars who are way smarter than me who have spent their careers reconstructing these kind of conversations. And so instead, I'm going to cut to the chase this morning, and I'm going to give you our best understanding of what was going on. Again, understand this is conjecture. This is not absolute categorical fact. Does that make sense? Okay. All we have is Paul's response. We're trying to go, well, what, what was he responding to? Here's our best guess based upon all of the evidence we have, and the evidence is, is myriad. Number one, these Jewish Christians who would have never considered themselves to be false teachers, considered them to be ardent lovers of Jesus Christ, but also very committed Jews, heard that the gospel that Paul was preaching was making inroads in the region of Galatia and in the Gentile communities as a whole. And then they heard what the gospel that Paul was preaching was, and they were concerned. Because Paul was preaching a gospel that kind of cut Judaism out completely and simply said, Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost, and he died for everyone. End of story. And anybody who wants to place their faith in him and give their hearts to him can be saved, irrespective of whether they are Jewish or Gentile, male, female, slave, free, doesn't matter. It is open to anybody. And these Jewish Christians start going, well, wait a minute. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. God promised to save his people, whom are the Jews. So yes, Jesus came and died for sinners, but he came and died for us. And so he, Paul, who, let's not forget, was trained as a Pharisee. He knows what he's doing. It seems to us, I'm speaking here as these Jewish Christians, it seems to us that Paul has intentionally truncated the gospel. He has intentionally cut it in half and said, I'm just going to preach Christ. I'm not going to preach the law. And that's dangerous. Why would he do this? Why would he intentionally lobotomize the gospel? Well, the only thing we can think of that would make him do that is that he's preaching to Gentiles who are not Jewish. And the idea that the God, the creator of everything, would embrace anybody and offer grace, well, that'll preach. But asking somebody to get circumcised... Asking somebody to submit to the law of Moses and become Jewish, that's a tougher sell. And, and it seems as if these Jewish Christians were pointing at Paul and saying, hey, listen, the reason he's not preaching the full gospel is that he is afraid that if he did preach the full gospel, they would reject it. But by preaching only a part of the gospel, namely Jesus crucified and the grace that comes through that, he, he's trying to curry favor with the very people that he's trying to save. And in so doing, they felt he was not giving them the full gospel. You following me? This is the accusation. Why, isn't Paul, why is the gospel that you're teaching us different from the one Paul gave us? Oh, it's because Paul was honestly afraid that you would reject the gospel if he told you the full gospel. So he only told you part of the gospel. We came to give you the full gospel. Well, why would he only give us part of the gospel? Because Paul wanted your approval more than he cared about your salvation. That's the accusation. 
And so you read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, right on the heels of Paul saying, if anybody teaches a gospel other than the one we taught, let them be eternally condemned. May they go to hell. He says in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? Because if I'm still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, Paul's going, hey, listen, I can only have one master. It's either going to be God or it's going to be people. I can't have both. I can only curry the favor of God or of people. And I, guys, I, I will confess to you, I, even today, as a pastor who's been, who has been trying to represent God to other people for over 15 years, even today I feel this tug on my heart between wanting to submit to God and follow him and be his representative and at the same time wanting to please people and meet their expectations of me. And there, of course, it's not even a question to me that I want to be God's representative and honor him. And I want people to like me, whether it's my peers, my friends, my family, or complete strangers that I happen to run into on the street. I want both. Can't we just have both? Sometimes. But what happens when in saying yes to God and following him, that conflicts with what the direction that our peers are going? What then? What happens when... Social sentiment moves against the word that is the foundation of my relationship with God, the very word that, ex- that, that begins to exhibit God's heart. What happens when I find myself in this place where people are saying only parts of this Bible are true? And I find myself wanting to downplay the differences and say it's all love, it's all love, and it is all love, but at the same time, how it, trying to make excuses for God. What happens when... And this has happened to me when the Holy Spirit kind of lays something on your heart, like, go say this to that person. And I'm going, my flesh is going, don't do it. Because if you do that, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to totally think you're nuts. And there have been seasons, times where I, I gave into the Spirit and I said, hey, I just feel like God is saying this to you. And there have been other times where I gave into the flesh and I just kind of went, good thought, and I walk the other way, right? Or I just kind of hold on to that thought to myself. For Paul, it's not a question of who he's following. Even though these Jewish Christians are accusing him of sharing a gospel for self Uh, serving motives, basically so that he would be accepted and that they would accept his truncated gospel, he's saying, no, 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 I am not motivated by by anything, but my love of God and my desire to do his will. This is not for people. This is for God. Make sense? Okay. The second accusation that these Jewish Christians were leveling against Paul had to do with his right to share the gospel at all. Ultimately, it was a question of authority. On what authority, Paul, do you have the right to share this gospel? Well, Paul says in the very first couple of words of Galatians, Paul, an apostle, as we talked about last week, that word apostle means a sent one. But sent by whom? Well, for the Jewish Christians, they they suggested that Paul was actually an ambassador, a sent one, an apostle or representative of the churches in Judea 
particularly the, the church that was in Jerusalem with the three pillars being Peter, James, and John. That is where they suggested Paul's authority came from, that he was a representative of them. And if that's the case, that that was where Paul was getting his um, credibility to share the gospel, well, then they could stand back and say, but we come with the same credibility because we come from the very same people. We come from these churches in Judea. We come with the blessing of Peter, James, and John. And the gospel we share is actually different from Paul's. It is more complete. And so even though Paul taught you a partial gospel, we are now going to teach you the completed gospel. So it's a matter of where is Paul's authority to share the gospel coming from at all. And he spends the next chapter explaining that his authority is not something derived simply that he just made up. Like basically, I'm going to go preach on my own. And the gospel that he shares is not something that he made up. It's not something that was given to him either by a person like Peter, James, or John, or from a church. It was given to him by God that it was revelation that he got it. And so we begin in verse 11. And we're going to read pretty quickly through here. There's quite a bit. And he makes the same point over and over and over through here. My gospel is from God. It is not from any person. I never looked to another person to tell me what to say, to tell me what this gospel was. All I have gotten from them is confirmation that my gospel is accurate. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, the good news that I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advanced in Judaism beyond many my own age amongst the people, and I was extremely jealous for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, these these Jewish Christians who were zealous for their faith, guys, I was even more zealous than they were. And when it comes to how zealous, I persecuted the church. I was the guy who presided over the murder of the first Christian martyr. Because I was afraid that this gospel message was a weed growing within Judaism and I tried to stamp it out and root it up before it could ever take root and spread. In fact, after I watched Stephen, this first Christian martyr being killed, I then went to the Jewish leaders and I asked them for papers, for letters, giving me permission to go to other places and stamp out the, the spread of the gospel. And I was on my way to Damascus. Which is, and if you guys on the back of your, your outline, you'll have the map because I realize that my laser pointer doesn't work on these TVs, so sad. So I gave you the map instead, okay? He started in Jerusalem, which is where the star is on that map. I'm sorry it's small. I wanted to give you just a little bit of space to be able to take notes if you want. From there, he was on his way to Damascus, which is the capital city of Assyria, another country, and he is going there to try to stamp out the gospel spread into that region. And as we know from Paul's story, as he was on his way, God met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus, in a blinding light, he falls from his horse, and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, he's persecuting the church. No, no, no. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And persecuting the people who are following me, you are persecuting me. And Paul is blinded and he goes into a time, he he finally finds his way to Damascus and he he, he goes through this season of exploration 
And so I'm going to keep reading here. He says, you've heard of how I used to be zealous, verse 15, but when God who set me apart by, from his mother's, I'm sorry, when, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, my immediate response wasn't to go consult any human being. My first thought wasn't, well, let me go find out what this gospel is. Remember, his point here is he's trying to, he is trying to prove again and again my gospel didn't come from a person or from a group of people. It was given to me by God. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. Rather, I went into Arabia. I went down into the wilderness. I spent time around, you know, maybe amongst the desert fathers, maybe simply by myself, but he spent time wrestling with this gospel message, wrestling with these conflicting things of his zeal for the Jewish faith. And a risen carpenter who was obviously real, who had met him on the road and radically transformed the trajectory of his life. Later, I returned to Damascus, the very place he had been headed to crush the gospel to crush the fledgling church, but rather than going there to stop the spread of the gospel, he went there to perpetuate it. Now is one of the greatest proponents of the gospel message there in Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. I finally, after three years of wrestling with my faith and sharing the gospel with other people, I finally made my way to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is just another name for Peter. I went there to meet with Peter, who at that time was the head of the church, and I stayed with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Those are the only two people I saw. I assure you before God, what I'm writing to you is no lie. Again, he's simply saying, hey, I did go there, but I didn't go there to find out what the gospel was. I already knew what the gospel was. I just went there to introduce myself. Then after, uh, then I went to Syria and to Cilicia, these Greek areas and I began to spread the gospel, I was personally unknown to these churches of Judea that are in Christ. The very churches that these Jewish Christians are saying, hey, our authority derives from here. And in fact, Paul's authority derives from these churches. He's representing them. And Paul goes, hey, they don't even know me. I never, I never interacted with them. I never talked to them. I certainly didn't get, you know, I'm not their ambassador in any way, shape or form. All they heard was that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Then, after 14 years, this, this meeting that he's going to have is recorded in Acts chapter 11, if you want to take a look at it later. And in Acts chapter 11, we read that Paul and Barnabas head down to Jerusalem. They had been in the church in Antioch which was, you'll see it on your map, it's kind of 355 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where Paul had made his outpost. That was where he went to church. That's where he was living. And that became the place that he was sent out into these different regions to share the gospel. And he said, after 14 years of of spreading the gospel and of being a minister of this gospel around here, I finally went back down to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 11, we see that he went down to bring some money that they had gathered in the church in Antioch for the poor, the widows, the orphans, stuff like that. But Paul's going to explain that his purpose for going was a little deeper than just bringing some money. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I also took Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, 
probably Peter, James, and John. <clears throat> I presented them the gospel that I preached amongst the Gentiles, the gospel for the, that for the last 14 years I've been telling people. Not something I got from them, but for the first time I laid out the gospel that I've been sharing. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and not, had not been running my race in vain. For a guy like Paul, who was self-sure, who knew that God had called him to do something, this is an extremely humble act. He's basically saying, hey, I've been sharing this gospel, but I just want to make sure, even though it's not something I got from people, I want to make sure that I'm, in, I'm on the right line, that we're on the same page, that what we're doing is consistent. And so he went to meet with Peter, James, and John, the, the pillars of the Christian church in Jerusalem who had walked with Jesus, who were called apostles before Paul ever was. And he said, guys, this is what I've been teaching the Gentiles. Am I on the, am I, are we on the same page here? And he says this in verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So at that time, I brought a Greek with me, just like you, Jew, or you Greek Gentiles who have taken hold of Jesus Christ are Greek. You are not circumcised. Titus wasn't circumcised. I brought him before Peter, James, and John. I shared the gospel with them. This is what I'm teaching. Titus wasn't circumcised. And they didn't tell him to go get circumcised. So these guys who are coming in saying, if you want to be saved, you must be circumcised. I can point back to a moment where the leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem didn't force one of my compatriots, one of the people who had given his heart to Jesus, to get circumcised. What more proof do you need that my gospel was complete? Verse 4, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ, to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment, however, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Because what if he had said, hey, you know what, Titus? We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to be around a bunch of Jewish people. It's probably better that you go get circumcised just so that they're not offended. Just so that they're not uncomfortable. And Paul's going, if we had done that, we would have completely cut the legs out from under us. Now, interestingly, at another point in Paul's missionary journeys, when he was going and preaching specifically to Jews, he did have one of his compatriots get circumcised so that they could preach the gospel and, and, and kind of get rid of all of those parameters. But for, for Titus, in this particular instance, Paul was making a point. It is not about circumcision. It is about that Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for somebody to be saved, and that the gospel transcends the old lines that we tend to put between people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, Roman citizen, non-Roman citizen, free man, slave, Republican, Democrat, independent. The gospel transcends all of that because Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ died for sinners of which all of us are in the same camp. Because nobody will be declared righteous by obedience to the law. Nobody has lived a perfect life so that they don't need to be saved. So we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. The truth that the cross is sufficient for our salvation. It's, there are no hoops that we have to jump through. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism, but they added nothing to my message. 
These pillars of the church, Peter, James, John, they didn't add anything. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning those who didn't identify themselves as Jewish, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, those who did identify themselves as Jewish. Now we have Peter going to the Jews. We have me, Paul, and Barnabas going to the Gentiles. God is spreading his gospel everywhere to everyone. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the Jews or the circumcised. All that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I'd been eager to do all along, and in fact, one of the reasons why I had come from Antioch down to Jerusalem in the first place, to give them this money. And they said, hey, you are right on. Your gospel is right on. All we ask is that you keep remembering the poor. You keep gathering from these wealthy Gentile believers in order to support their, their more needy uh, you know, widows and orphans down here. Okay? So we kind of following that. I know that that was a lot to kind of slog through. Paul's making one point. The cross is sufficient for our salvation. There's nothing that needs to be added to that in order for us to be saved. There are not hoops that we need to jump through. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus even plus baptism. Baptism is a response to, it is not a prerequisite to our salvation. It's not Jesus plus following all of these rules, all of this minutiae, doing it all right. It's not, you have to do these things in order to be able to take hold of Jesus. It's that you let Jesus take hold of you and then the Holy Spirit begins to work out of you the world so that he can work into you becoming a reflection of Jesus Christ. That's something we'll talk about in coming weeks, what that looks like, because he's not simply saying that it doesn't matter how you live. He's talking about how are we saved? We're saved solely through the the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Is that clear? Okay? He just keeps hammering this thing. And the point he's been trying to make in this last chapter we just looked at is that the gospel that he shared was not something that was given to him. His authority was not something he derived from any people sending him out to be their representative. I have been sent by Jesus Christ. I am his representative and his representative alone, and I am not concerned with what other people think. That said, that's his primary purpose, and that's why he wrote this. But there's another thing that I want to tease out of what Paul said that I think is really important for us to recognize. And that is his testimony in the midst of him sharing this story. Although it wasn't his primary reason for sharing his testimony, I simply want to tease something out of it. So if you'll go back here to chapter 1, I want you to turn to verse 13 for a second. Because in verse 13, Paul begins to lay out who he was as a follower of, of the law, who he was prior to meeting Jesus. A lot of people talk about their BC days, before Christ days, and then their AD days, after I met Jesus days, right? And there's that very distinct line by, here's who I was, and this is who I am now. And one of the things I have noticed about the gospel is that it transforms people, not just for in our eternal trajectory, But it transforms people here and now. And that's one of the powers and one of the signs of the truth in which we preach is that our lives are different. They will know you are my disciples. How? 
by the way, we love one another. By the way, we follow. It, 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 you know, it's, it's our lives being shaped into the image of Christ that ultimately, ultimately reflect what we actually believe. Jesus said, you will know who they are by the fruit that their lives produce, either the fruit of our flesh or the fruit of the Spirit living within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so Paul here begins to share his story. Guys, you know how zealous I was for my faith. You know how, how I persecuted the church. I was going to stamp it out. I was, a, I was a Jewish terrorist. Nodding my approval as a Christ-fearing follower of God was stoned to death in front of me, and I gave my blessing to it. And in fact, I wanted to do more of this. And so I had asked for permission to go do this in other cities. This is who I was. I was zealous for the law. I was so much further along than many other men my age. I knew the law inside and out. I could say with, with all humility that I had been, was living a righteous life. And yet, I was lost. Because I was dependent upon my own strength. And I was dependent upon a broken stairway that I had been trying to climb, hoping that I could reach God. And then we come in verse 15 to this moment, this transition. And it is indicated by a single word. And I think that this single word pretty much sums up the power of the gospel. And that word is but. One T, not two. Okay? Verse 15 But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, and he was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, I was a Jewish terrorist. But when God, when Jesus met me on the road to Damascus and rocked my world and shattered my confidence in the things that I had found my identity in before, the entire trajectory of my life radically changed. That word but indicates a change in trajectory. Do you understand how that works? We're going one way, but now we're going a different way. Let me give you a couple of examples of how it can be used. The other team just scored the go-ahead touchdown, but there was a flag on the play. Kathy, Ethan just fell out of the trampoline. But he's okay. Guys, I just got a phone call. Kathy's just been involved in a multi-car accident. But nobody's hurt. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, we have found a lump. But it's benign. Paul would say, I was a Jewish terrorist, zealous for a law that I thought was going to save me and make God proud of me. But when I met Jesus, my entire life changed. And I went from trying to destroy the spread of this gospel, trying to stop the spread of Christ's followers, to becoming the greatest proponent of it, giving my life fully to it. I was saved from a a life of obedience to the law and a love of the law. I was saved into 
a life of giving myself to sharing the good news with other people, that it's not because of what we've done, but because of what has been done for us. That is my but. I was this, but now I'm this. Do you get this? You see how that transition happens? Because this can be very helpful for us when we try to articulate our testimony. I once was, but now I'm. Let me share a couple of stories of people from history who have some amazing We won't call them butts. uh, uh, Conversion stories, right? I am doing my best not to become a 13-year-old child up here right now, so bear with me. John Newton was a slave trader in the 1800s. He made his living off of buying and selling people into slavery. And as he was traveling, he, he had been brought up to believe in God from his mom, but it had never really taken. For him, it was just tenants and and things that his mom had told him about, but whatever. He was here to live life and make the most of life and, and suck the marrow out of life. So John Newton had given his life to buying and selling people into a lifetime of servitude for his own benefit. And as he is traveling with a full boat with a crew, with a, a, um, you know, the holds not only full of people, but also full of things that they had gathered in South Africa. As he is traveling back home to England, there's a massive storm that begins to kick up. And it lasts not for a day, not for a week, but for over 11 days, it begins to pound on their ship. The, the mast is creaking like it's going to break. The, the sails are shredded, almost useless. And the waves and pounding and pounding and pounding against the hull of the boat have sprung leaks everywhere. In fact, there's a leak that's so big that if it's not plugged quickly, they're going down. Because the guys who are trying to pump the, the hold out cannot keep up with the amount of water coming in. And John Newton found himself, this young man found himself at the helm of this ship, realizing all of a sudden, that he had reached the end of his rope. That he couldn't save himself. That this ship was going down, just waiting for that last wave to crest the bow of the boat and send them to the bottom of the sea. And he cried out to God, said, God, if you're really there, I, if you get me out of this, I will give you my life. That's basically the gist of his prayer. God, save me and you can have me. And a wave hits the side of the boat and, and the things that they have packed into the hold shift and plug up the hole. And the pumps are able to finally get some of that water out and they're able to slowly limp back to shore and every single person on the ship survives. John Newton would look back years, even though I, I have to confess, his life wasn't immediately transformed as if we sometimes think happens, right? Right? Even Paul's life was not immediately transformed. He spent several years down in Arabia in the wilderness kind of processing these things. For John Newton, he continued in the slave trade for several years beyond this. But he would look back in his life to that night and say, that was the night where I finally let Christ in. And he began to work on me. And it was a long process because there was a lot of hardened flesh to begin to peel away. But fast forward, John Newton, later on in life, would pen these words that we know really, really well. 
Amazing grace. (laughs) How sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. In John Newton's life, the trajectory of where he was going was radically changed when he came face to face with Jesus Christ. Because he was no longer a proponent of slavery. He actually became one of the most outspoken opponents of it. He began to decry that practice. And a month before he died in his late 70s, John Newton saw the, the Slavery Act signed into existence, outlawing slavery throughout all of the British Empire, in part because of his voice. God saved him from a life that was built off of other people's misery, saved him to a life helping people out of misery and trying to save people from the very thing he used to be a proponent of. That's one story of many. Another one that I'd share with you is a guy named Raul Reese. Raul was a um, Vietnam veteran. When he came home from Vietnam, he, he got into martial arts, which he had done as a kid, and he started his own dojo and began to train people. That was his career. And from the outside, people would say he had a great life. He had a wife. He had a kid. He had a career that he was good at that was successful. And yet, inside, he was consumed by anger. By his own lips, he, he confesses that he was a man who, was, who could never break himself from the haunting images of Vietnam and violence. And in order to kind of deal with the demons that he felt inside, he took it out on his family. He was an abusive man. He was an angry man. When he would in, encounter people on the street, it was not with love. It was with anger and with fear. And one night when Raoul came home, from a long day, and he saw that his wife's bags were packed and that she was finally going to make good on her promise to leave him. He snapped. He said, enough of this. Enough of this broken world. And he went and got his 22. And his plan was not simply to take his own life, but to take the life of his wife and his child before he took his life. And as he waited in his living room, waiting for his family to come home so he could spread his, his, his displeasure and his, his, his pain onto others. He just happened to turn on the TV. I'm not sure, because I'm not clear on this, I'm not sure whether he turned on the TV intentionally or if he bumped it and it turned on, but somehow the TV got turned on. And there's Chuck Smith <laughs> preaching the gospel. <laughs> and Raul Reese listens to this while he's waiting for his wife come, to come home so he can end her life and end his own. And that night, instead of taking his family's life, he gave his life to Christ. He put his gun down. He knelt down on the ground, on the carpet there in his living room, and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And thus began a journey out of slavery, out of bondage, out of, uh, uh, of captivity to his anger, into a life of following Jesus. He ended up going to the Calvary School of Ministry, of which these girls who have been up and ministering to us this morning go to the same school. Learned from Chuck Smith, the same guy that shared the gospel unintentionally via television. Today, he's a pastor in Golden Springs, California. God is, you can even listen to him on 107.9 
Um, he, he has a, a daily radio broadcast, of, and he gets to share the very good news that God used to save him out of captivity, out of slavery, to this new life. And I go, those are amazing conversion stories. They've got magnificent, splendid butts. And then I look at my own and I go, hey, there's not much there, right? I mean, I don't have that. I wasn't saved out of selling people into slavery. I wasn't saved out of premeditated murder. I thank God that he saved me and gave me an eternal hope. But, but as I look at my own life, I go, what has he saved me from? And then it, it dawned on me this week as I was thinking about this. He saved me from religion. That's probably the biggest thing that he saved me from here and now in this life was from a life in subservience to religion that says that my relationship with God is contingent upon me doing the right things and saying the right things and knowing the right things and acting the right way and posturing to everybody else to say, hey, look, he's got it together. I was saved from a life of slavery to the rules and to religion and into a life of relationship because that's the invitation that Jesus made to us. Not follow these rules and surely you'll be with me in heaven. It's follow me, walk with me, learn from me, do what I do, rest in me. It's not all about striving. Just be with me. It was in my sophomore year of college. It was the first year I was living out from under my parents' roof. I was living in my fraternity house, surrounded by guys who had said yes to the world and were kind of charging full steam ahead. And I had a choice. Do I follow my parents' faith and hold on to all of the kind of things that, I had chosen for my, that they had chosen for me and imposed upon me? Or do I give myself wholeheartedly to the same things that I saw my fraternity brothers run into? And that year, God said, listen, this is not about rules. This is about just following me in relationship. And so I can tell you today that God has saved me from religion and invited me into relationship, but he often has to um, remind me because my flesh loves to go back to religion, loves to go back and try to, to, to reconstruct a ladder that I can use to climb back into his good graces, particularly when I'm confronted with my own brokenness which is often. And I will confess to you that there are times when I think about guys like John Newton and Raul Reese and I say their conversion stories are so amazing, so magnificent, and mine is not in comparison. And I have, con I have said to people who have pretty powerful conversion stories, man, I wish I had a bigger one like you. And they go, man, I wish I had a smaller one like you. Isn't it ironic that even when it comes to our conversion stories, we still covet what our neighbor has? I mean, it is such human. It's just our... And I guess the moral, and please bear with me here, the moral of the story here is to embrace the butt that God has given you rather than being embarrassed about it, right? I mean, that's really what, what we're talking about here is be proud of the fact that God has saved you at all and embrace who you are. Embrace what he saved you from and embrace what he has saved you to. Because God has not saved me simply to eternity there and then after I die. He has saved me to a relationship here and now so I can go up into the mountains by myself and have a conversation with my Father in heaven. 
Or I can do it in the still quiet hours of the morning when my kids think it's 6 a.m. and it's actually 7 a.m. Hallelujah be your name. The invitation is not simply to religion, to following the rules, to trying to earn and curry God's favor. The invitation is to follow him. And the gospel is not a gospel simply of we will be saved there and then. It is also a gospel of when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, he can transform your life here and now. And doggone it, I have not left myself enough time. But I, I know that many of you have had your lives transformed. You, this gospel has become true for you. And you've seen it bear fruit in your own life. Here's where I need your help. Last week I gave you a challenge to write out your testimony. One of you, Charlie Massingill, Gold Star, one of you emailed me. Well done, Charlie. There is an extra jewel in heaven in the crown. You will ultimately lay down the moment you get there, so I'm not sure it really helps. The rest of you, you get an opportunity for makeup homework. This week, and by the way, this, is help, this will help us prepare for Easter. Because my hope is that I can find one or two of you who would be willing to share how the gospel has become true in your life. So I would ask you to prayerfully consider how have you seen the gospel to be true? Maybe answer this question. I once was blank. But now I'm what? What has he saved you from and what has he saved you to? Because i got to tell you, man, there... God is good and he is patient and he is wonderful. And now let's just spend a few minutes worshiping him and thanking him for his amazing grace that saves wretches like you and me. By the way, if you want to respond, maybe you need prayer. I'm going to invite some of our elders to come down and be in the front. 